Shane Kilkelly. And I'm Carl Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And in this episode, we'll be talking about the part three of uh, the film series All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace, um, which is the final part. Uh, it's only a three-part series. Um, this one is titled The Monkey in the Machine and the Machine in the Monkey. Um, it's... Um, this one's kind of dark, like like a lot yes. darker than the others. Yeah, I think it, it gets into um, a lot of sort of themes about, you know, really intense violence, but also um, kind of like psychological themes that are less treated in the, the other episodes. So we get a little bit of a hint of it in the first episode, um, but uh, not to any extent like we do here. Yeah, definitely. And like, um, I suppose like, I mean, there is some pretty, pretty upsetting imagery in the film. And so like, I mean, we won't dwell on that very long, but for anyone that's kind of tempted to like actually watch the film, if you, if you don't like the like image of human carcasses laying in the open, uh, I would not attempt this one. It is like, it's, it's not, a, it's not a dominating uh, part of the uh, filmography, but like it is in there and it's actually kind of pretty gruesome actually you know um yeah there's there's a lot of human death um in this episode yeah yeah it's grisly um but the 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 episode opens anyway with this um the kind of the 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 sort of title sequence that that we're we're sort of accustomed to by now um and the the text overlays say that this is a story about the rise of the machines and why no one believes you can change the world for the better anymore how we decided that we were machines ourselves played video games and help start Africa's world war. Right. And uh, there's actually, a, I just noticed an article the other day talking about how this war is still happening. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, a, this will be like, this will be, this will be one of the two sort of main uh, threads of narrative through this. Um, <clears throat> and we're actually kind of introduced to both threads uh, in this very like rapid fire opening kind of sequence, uh, starting from January 2000, where this guy Bill Hamilton flies to the Congo and kind of arrives in this um, the setting of like intense sort of chaos and, and violence with mil- uh, militias fighting over precious minerals and uh, access to mines. And these these same minerals are essential for building computers, um, uh, for which you know the demand is is soaring. And he c- cuts in this sort of like uh, he ties it to the launch of the PlayStation Two. Uh, which is like there's a direct uh, direct linkage there. Um, there's kind of a wonderful little sort of bit of like from a, I think it's like a Channel Four news uh, thing of like uh, oh yeah the PS2 is about to launch, launch uh, huge demand not much supply some of our kids could miss out this Christmas uh, you know just like but contrasting that with like images of like bombs going off in the fucking Congo you know um, like um, he does this kind of expert like inter inter slicing of these um, these disparate sort of um, parts of the world. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 an it's a perfect uh, sort of juxtaposition to take down this idea of like commodity fetishism, right? That we we talked about earlier. Um, that that sort of alienation that is between the the point of resource extraction and the point of sale. Mm, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's just completely different realities. Like, I mean. I remember the PS2 launch and I wasn't, uh, you know, we didn't have enough money to, to buy a console at launch. I don't think I've ever bought a console at launch in my entire life. Um, but, uh, I remember the sort of hype and I remember a friend getting one and all the sort of things I was concerned with, 
at that time regarding the PS2, you know, none of them had anything to do with uh, the extraction of this this colomite tantalite uh, mineral <laughs> in the Congo and and this this incredibly bloody and and horrific uh, war that was happening. Yeah, and I mean, like, still for, happening, I guess. For I guess for like a for a lot of people, like there there will there will never be a connection between those. Like I think I mean the the notion of blood diamonds has kind of in, uh, entered into the public consciousness to some extent, but um, the connection between uh, this kind of resource extraction and uh, computing technology is like not not well understood at all. Um, not at all, no. And um, I mean I think it was a uh, it's really interesting for me to see that whole thing about the PS2 because you know I think. In Japan, we feel like we have no connection to this kind of imperialist violence at all. But, you know, that's a Sony console. And, you know, that's a major connection, right? Yeah, so yeah. it just well, the, kind of... The violence is obscured from you through the kind of market and pricing and so on. That like there's there's such a huge chain of a, of su- a supply chain but that that like keeps keeps your world separated from theirs, you know. Exactly. Yeah, and and so many levels of mediation, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. um. But anyway, so like Hamilton arrives in this kind of setting, but he's completely unconcerned actually with this stuff because um, his his trick is that um he's convinced that um the AIDS virus or the HIV was um created by accident by researchers that were in the Congo trying to create a uh, polio vaccine, and he's gone there to try and search for evidence of this. Um, and again, this is a really rapid fire kind of sequence uh, where we're kind of told all this and that like uh, while he's there, Hamilton. Uh, catches malaria, but is ultimately killed by an aspirin that gets lodged in his his gut and, um, and kills him. But uh, Curtis then kind of like, and if this kind of like sort of the music sort of changes a little bit, but that um, Curtis says that even as he died, Hamilton knew that he would live forever. Uh, basically, because he had it, through his work, he had shown that human beings were uh, simply self replicating machines whose task was to pass on genetic information into the future. And that was going to be true of Hamilton. His his kind of ultimate sort of um, in, information, his soul would live on forever and through his genes. Um, yeah, yeah. It's the the first sort of mention we have here of um, the gene as uh, the immortal soul, right? Uh, which is a thing that's going to come up later again. Yeah, and like it's this is like um, this episode's a little bit sort of chaotic in that like it it cuts between the two perspectives of the of like central africa and uh, essentially london or like the west in general uh quite rapidly back and forth and like there our first uh, run through for the congo is um starting from 1960 where congo becomes independent from belgium um and then uh rapidly sort of collapses into into chaos and, and infighting um and a lot of it centered around these kind of mineral resources um and um like and this, this is something that is ongoing today, and it's, it, it is uh, Congolese history, and you know it would eventually be renamed Sire. But this is a constant theme throughout that history of um, uh, fighting over the control of these mines and these extraordinarily uh, important minerals. Um, yeah, and um, I think it's it's quite interesting. He makes a statement uh, to the effect that the Congo is central to the modern world. Um, and so I think that's, that's kind of laying out a justification for the focus of the episode, but it's also just, um, 
I think a really interesting statement um, that we think about the Congo as this, this, you know, strange hinterland that is is just kind of this place of of, of uh, poorly understood uh, imperialist violence, um, but putting that at the center of modernity is a real sort of inversion of of our usual perspective um and and like you know he kind of makes the point that like well you know this this columnite tantalite and these you know copper uranium uh all of these mineral resources that are absolutely central to what we consider to be the sort of artifacts that define modernity um or originate in in the Congo um and so uh it really is central to our experience of modernity in a way that I think like you know almost all of us fail to appreciate oh yeah definitely and like uh you know Curtis will kind of do his best to kind of um, help us to appreciate that. And like the main, the main, one of the main things that comes across here is that like there's these absolutely callous kind of like mining operation dudes who are totally disinterested in the kind of um, the havoc and, and violence. Because like there's this kind of like televised uh, report to shareholders or whatever that like with this guy and a guy addressing the camera, and he's like, "Oh yeah, this this week we've heard chilling reports of." half a million people butchered and uh you know people being tied together and set on fire and mass murders and all this kind of stuff but our directors and i have asked ourselves one question to what extent will our operations be affected and they will not these events need not directly concern us in any way and what a disgusting fucking thing to look at like Wow. Yeah. It's, it's just like, no, yeah, there's there's this like apocalypse of of horror that's going on in that in that country, but it doesn't affect our profits. So woo, who gives a shit, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um I think the company was called uh Union Minier. Um and uh my note that I wrote there about that uh statement was just uh capitalism, yo. <laughs> yeah, basically. I mean it's like oh god. Yeah, this, you want to talk is... about alienation? <laughs> yeah, but like for for this for this guy, it's I think he even says that like oh well, you know our our operation is six hundred kilometers away from uh, whatever place like Stanleyville or whatever that this stuff's kicking off, and so we just, we don't don't need to give a shit, you know? Um, yeah, it's like oh that's that's way over there. Yeah, doesn't doesn't matter in the slightest, and that I mean that's the really incredible thing about this centrality of the Congo, right, is that it is a place of constant conflict and violence. But at the same time, it is a place that is organized in such a way that the mineral resources it produces can be reliably fed into the world's industrial machine, right? Like that, that, there is this regularity of supply production at the same time that there is this regularity of violence, and that that's the thing that I just I have such a hard time squaring in my head, right? Like that these two things coexist with each other in the same place. Yeah, and like they're they're kind of like they're 
one one envelops the other in in a sort of but in a way that like the the mining operations are genuinely have enough resources to carry on their business and do whatever and just uh you know get shipments out of there with with very little regard to what's actually going on um surrounding them and it's like the, the congo is an enormous place as well like it's um, geographically huge yeah um, which helps that um yeah, I suppose when you yeah. have all the money in the world, you can just pay for enough bodyguards to keep the shipments uh, running. Yeah, grim. Um, yeah. But we, we cut away from there to uh, to London in uh, 1963, and we get the an actual introduction to Bill Hamilton, who's a guy who's, who's been studying uh, Darwin's theory of evolution, um, and he, he sees everything through this kind of lens. And he's, he's convinced that, like, everything about uh, humans and everything else can be explained in terms of genetics, that the uh, the desire to pass on genetic inf- information from this generation to the next. But he then sort of like, he kind of trips over this kind of what, what he seems to think of as the problem of altruism, where in, in ant colonies, he observes that some ants sacrifice themselves for the good of the colony, and that some humans do the same thing, where it doesn't seem to actually be directly motivated by a desire to survive and, uh, and pass the genes on. Yeah, and so... Um he tries to figure this out and he spends a lot of time in London just like looking at commuters come and go in the train stations. Um, and it's, it's really interesting because he's, he's sort of trying to see people as something other than what they would normally appear to be. Right. Um, and the way that he does this is by looking at them in this, modern built environment right um i I remember uh reading this one book that was about vienna uh kind of at the turn of the century and then like in the interwar period um and about the contributions of of vienna and viennese life to uh sort of 20th century into to modern thinking um and one of the points the author made was just how many intellectuals were um, deeply influenced by the uh, introduction of the train. Um, you know, like, for example, a uh, really famous one is, um, I think, Einstein's special theory of relativity uh, was something that he worked out when he was on a train. Um, I may, I may be getting that wrong, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that trains were involved there, but there, there were many other intellectuals who also sort of like came up with these characteristically modern scientific theories because they were either watching or on trains. And it's very interesting to me the way that our built environment and the infrastructure we live with uh, can actually come up with these or like help us develop these very fundamental ideas about the way the world works. And that seems to be the case uh, also with this idea of um, this kind of like genetic determinism that uh, Hamilton came up with. Right. Yeah, it does. And it's like, I think there's also a parallel in like even the content of the previous two episodes of, um, you know, how computing ended up informing like a lot of thinking about uh, various subjects um because we, we do seem to do that thing of like in, uh, creating some sort of environment for ourselves and then 
that it reading the environment because what, what what Hamilton's doing here is actually kind of weird where it's like he's trying to find patterns in people's behavior but he's doing it in a setting where by definition their behaviors will have very rigid patterns like because when seven or eight hundred people disembark a train and then all walk in one direction like that's not a coincidence it's because of the layout of the place like oh like all these people seem to like channel together into uh, amorphous kind of hordes that move along uh, very strict lines it's like yeah well what, what else are they going to do they can't walk through the walls right like there's only one exit yeah. from the place <laughs> what the fuck are they meant to do yeah and i i mean i, I remember um the first time i went to tokyo station or shinjuku station in tokyo um and the experience of humanity that i had there was like literally something i never could have had in my hometown right like the way in which i experienced being with other people in this this kind of like just unbelievable velocity of movement of people in these 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 channels uh of of movement um it's just it's something i couldn't have even conceived of before being there myself yeah um, yeah and like so yeah. the, the the kind of point here is that like uh hamilton sort of has a bit of an epiphany and starts to see the world from the sort of gene's eye view he sees uh sees beneath the skin and the bones and sort of sees this he basically sees like human beings as like meat suits that are worn by genes that like the actual control of the human being is in the in the genes and that the, the humans are kind of like um, senseless automata that o- that obey the the genetic code. Um, he sort of inverts the he, like he he put makes the the gene the agent, and the um, the, uh, the 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 human as uh, sort of a meat mecha that gets worn by the gene. Right. So he, by performing this abstraction, he is able to resolve the problem of altruism by saying that. Well, individual human beings um, may demonstrate altruism. The actual agents that are controlling their actions are themselves purely selfish. Mm-hmm. Right. And like um, Curtis kind of says that there here that like uh, the genes are not like people; they are like machines. Um, again, for like for Hamilton's sort of pur- uh, purposes here, uh, they're tiny calculating engines that would work out the mathematically best outcome. Um, which is which is profoundly strange because I th- I think what Hamilton has done here is he's gotten it exactly wrong. Like it's it's precisely the opposite of what I think is actually the case in reality, where genes genes are actually like relatively simple automata that are like w- wondrous certainly and like they're worthy of study and um, like they they do pretty amazing things, but like they follow pretty deterministic rules and like you can you know, actually study them and predict, predict kind of how they'll move around and such. But, um, and it's, it's the, it's the people and like animals and like larger sort of groups of them that exhibit the dynamic and complex behaviors. But Hamilton gets that exactly upside down where he attributes the complex strategic behavior to the genes. And in his view, the animal is a simple automata. Like, it's profoundly well, strange and, what he does here, <laughs> you know? And we're going to see that um, his ideas develop by sort of bringing in um, ideas from von Neumann. Um, and, you know, 
it, it, it's not hard to see how these ideas that developed in the context of like Cold War military planning um, would be amenable to telling a story about how altruism does not exist and there's nothing in this world but selfishness. Mm, yeah. Right. <laughs> that like that, that there's this this sort of mutual hostility, uh, which is also characteristic of like um, mutually assured destruction. Right. Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, it's just like it, it just really struck me with this kind of thing that like the because as we know that this ends up going on to be a like a very popular sort of idea and that like still kind of echoes through our, our culture now. Um, but for it to have such weird roots and to be so kind of off the mark right from the start, I think is is a uh, quite strange, you know. And it it's kind of like um, it's very much the the opposite of this kind of meritocracy stuff that you get uh, get thrown about. That like, well, like this this idea had no essentially no merit, you know. Like it wasn't it wasn't based on much of anything that could be sort of tied to a reality. But in, it actually had had legs and sort of um, went on to, to influence the world. Um, which I think is pretty weird. Yeah, hugely. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember when I was going to university uh, in the sort of uh, mid, like, or well, like around uh, 2004 to 2008, um, at University of British Columbia, this evolutionary psychology stuff was everywhere. It's just everywhere. It was like all these different departments, especially the psychology department, but it kind of crept into everything. And I remember there were people doing like research about like just just really like gross stuff, like, you know, like uh, this kind of thing that later went on to be associated with uh, like MRAs and uh, and like uh, sort of fascists and alt-right people about, um, you know, like how sort of reasonably empathetic ideas about relationships or caring can all just be like really reduced down to like these very simplistic material exchanges and like these ideas about like free market economics combining with ideas about um, evolutionary psychology in order to sort of like justify this idea that like um, relationships can just be broken down to purely material exchanges um, in a way that happens to uh, privilege very, like, kind of, like, cruel and brutal ideas about patriarchy, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, just even when I was there at the time and, and being quite a bit younger, I just stayed away from that stuff because it was like, these people don't, they seem like uh really unpleasant <laughs> like just yeah, really it's really like, unpleasant. it's funny how um it's both funny and sort of you know strangely convenient that these kind of um you know like unappealing thugs can end up cooking up a sort of a convoluted explanation for why that kind of thuggery is uh, natural and good um, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I mean that—that's kind of a central through line of this uh, episode, right? Mm, yeah, it is. Um, 
But yeah, and get, getting on to a different kind of uh, kind of violence, we're, we're going to be taken back in time a bit to Rwanda in the 1930s, and we're kind of introduced to um, uh, not, not a character that will recur, but he sort of introduces to an idea, uh, Arnold Dennis, who was, uh, was, was a filmmaker that was kind of putting together these kind of films about Africa that would, you know, uh, introduce the West to the, the the wonders of this dark continent, this kind of shit. Um, but he, he sort of cooks up this myth um, about Rwanda that, like, oh, there was this this tribe uh, called the Tutsis, who were the, these kind of noble race that came from Egypt and arrived and subjugated the Hutus, who were this kind of, like, uh, a, a separate race of dumb peasants, um, which was nonsense, you know. <laughs> it's It's a fabrication, and, you know, it's presented here... Um, as kind of an isolated thing, but this is a thing that Europeans did like kind of anywhere they went. Like, you know, there's, there's a, there's a similar sort of, um, you know, myth about the Aryans coming into India, right? Like it's, it's always the case that they have paler skin. It's always the case. They come from the North. You know, it's always the case that they're like supermen. Um, and you know, it's always the case that it just so happens to conveniently coincide with the, uh, characteristics of Europeans, right? Yeah. Um, and, and like, even beyond that, it was, it was useful to the Belgian colonists for, uh, you know, control of this population. Um, but like at the, at the time that like the, neither of the, the Tutsis nor the Hutus actually believed this about each other. They didn't see each other as being separate races, um, but, you know, the Belgians planted this idea and they really kind of uh, ran with it. Like they brought scientists in to prove this myth, um, you know, phrenology. We, we get like actual calipers on screen, which is uh, amusing. Uh, and then they all they introduced like racial identity cards to, to like solidify this, this like apartheid um, segregated uh, state uh, where they would kind of rule. They would rule, but with the sort of Tutsis as this kind of like ruling elite also that would... Um, you know, it was all very useful, of course, to the, the colonists. Um, yeah, it's that that classic uh, colonial power of classification. Yeah, yeah right? exactly. Um, right. I've been reading uh, a book about uh, sort of like Métis history and like gives a pretty like in-depth analysis of sort of like the classifications and... Uh, and sort of systems of control related to them uh, that are characteristic of the Canadian state. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's all this kind of stuff about just, like, establishing these hierarchies of classification and putting the people in these boxes. And, I mean, like, yeah, like, they gave these these racial identity cards, but, you know, we still kind of have that in Canada, Right. Like you know, if you have, if you are status or non-status, um, it's it's like this is still a thing that's happening, right? <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> it's just like very, very extremely not good. Um, but uh, yeah, so the the next bit is that like uh, yeah, obviously, well, it's the next bit of the film and the next bit of history. Um, uh, in the fifties, Bel Belgian withdraws from uh, from Rwanda and kind of grants it independence. But of course, like the the country wasn't prepared at all for this kind of uh, transition. And um, it's kind of an inter interesting sort of turn here where um, sort of like liberal forces from the in the uh, Belgian government sort of are kind of like driven by this guilt about the colonial past. And they sort of encourage the Hutus to uh, liberate themselves and become free and all this other sort of uh, Western Enlightenment stuff. Um, 
but of course like they've been poisoned by this two races myth for uh, a couple of generations now and um you know embark on a campaign of like savage revenge against the tutsis who were who were like a, a minority of like about 15 percent of the population and sort of like the striking thing that we see in this episode is when it comes to the the later 1990s uh, genocide um it is uh it's very much these sort of um ideas of national liberation that people who are involved in the genocide use to justify their own actions um so these 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 sort of classically liberal ideas um kind of just like make their way through the society like so first of all you have you know the race theory which is a a classically liberal idea Um, but then furthermore you have this idea of sort of like national liberation and um and and liberty that just becomes disseminated through the whole society and for just like decades later uh continues to wreak violence um and and I I think there is a certain extent to which Curtis sort of overplays the power of ideas in in these episodes, or especially in this episode. But the point still stands, right? That yeah, certainly. And like it um it kind of all it all sort of adds up to this kind of like sense towards the end of the film that like um, even even sort of ostensibly uh, you know well-intentioned sort of ideas or actions um can can create chaos as well and like kind of he eventually gets to this kind of point of asking like well have we do we have we ended up sort of adopting fatalistic ideas about uh, ourselves like thinking of ourselves as machines because we're so turned off by like even the when we do things that we think are going to be good or whatever like it's, it's you know those belgians who probably sincerely believed that oh the Hutus would be better off liberating themselves or whatever um and f- just didn't see this stuff coming but like i don't know yeah if if, the, if it always leads to violence um violence that then cascades down to through the generations you know uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. pretty grim yeah um yeah it's it's a grim episode <laughs> right so but like and the core of it is this kind of thing of a uh, like myths ideas running out of control right that like Yes, it's uh, Curtis does put a lot of stock in ideas, but then like I think he's specifically kind of like highlighting how ideas break off of the leash and bolt, and they run about you know causing all sorts of things that are not you know under the control of the people who came up with the idea in the first place. Um, but uh, we're brought back then to um, kind of getting back into ha- Hamilton's uh, orbit. Uh, we're introduced to George Price in London uh, in 1967, who um, kind of recognizes that the Hamilton's work, his mathematic descriptions of genes and their sort of propagation and their their incentives, is pretty much exactly mirrored in the mathematics of computation, which is really sort of interesting. And he's like, Price is this sort of like hyper-rationalist who sort of loves to tear down sacred cows and myths and so on. Um, And um, there's actually this kind of really interesting little tidbit that like he had proposed that the U.S. should use computers to calculate unhappiness levels across the world to predict where communism might take root. Um, so, like, he's really into this thing of, like, uh, math and computation as tools of rational analysis that can be applied to anything. Yes, yes, um, absolutely. And, I mean, it, it 
again, it's that Cold War background, right? That uh, uh, we see here, the Cold War background of computing. Um, and, and of course, the, as I said before, the ideas that he, he takes up are uh, the ideas of self-reproducing automata that were developed by uh, John von Neumann. And I think there's a little, <clears throat> a little blurb, um, a little interview with someone about von Neumann, right? Uh, that comes comes in here, and uh, yeah, that I I, I think that um, you know von Neumann is is not especially well known outside of maybe computing circles these days, um, but there's a pretty strong case to be made that he was like the greatest genius of the 20th century. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's just that. I think he, in his sort of biography, is such a unpleasant person that we don't really celebrate him in the same way we celebrate Einstein, right? Even though he was arguably an even greater genius than Einstein was. It's, it's, it's just that it's not that he wasn't a personable individual. Like, he was very socially adept and able to do a lot of sort of, like, bureaucratic maneuvering in order to promote his scientific agenda. It's just that when people talk about him, they say that he he only really had, like, one real friend, and everybody else he dealt with was kind of a fake relationship. Um, and... Uh, and you know he was just uh, just just so bought into these ideas of like hyper aggressive militarism, um, and and you know like wanted to preemptively nuke the Soviet Union and kill everybody <laughs> so that they could win the Cold War, right? Like it's it's like he, you know, he used to have like he's like Blair like Prussian marching music out of his office. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like that's the kind of person he was, you know, but at the same time, like he was before there were digital computers, he was the greatest computer alive, right? Like he was the greatest like he he could he could do incredibly complicated calculations just off the top of his head. Um and he worked in so many fields. Like he just, as the interviewer says, like he applied his sort of ideas to all kinds of different fields. He worked, you know, like in, in this kind of uh, computer science, but he also worked in physics and he also worked in economics um, and uh, he developed game theory. And like he his influence was just so widespread um, because he had this incredible ability both to do mathematics, but also to apply it to all kinds of different fields. It's just that he was, he was so unpleasant that we barely even remember him, you know, he, even though he was tremendously successful, he wasn't an obscure, he's not like one of those um, kind of obscure nerds who comes up with one great idea and, and it sort of like gets uh, shared later. Um, he, he was, he was like a very successful scientific entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, and, and he, sh he should and probably have like a lot more recognition for being the originator of a lot of these kind of ideas of like that, basically the belief that computers would save the world through this application of logic. And I think there's like from the content of the, the interview, or it's not really an interview, but like uh, the, the description that's given, 
Um, I think there's like there's a deep connection there in with the, uh, you know, aggressive militarism, because there's a sense of like a conquesting logic that like there's like oh, computers apply logical processes, not just to mathematics, but to all fields that are as yet untouched by the logical process. And this is a conquesting, penetrating, spreading logic. That like, yeah, and he was like he he always wanted to be a uh, like his his dream. He was born into a, I believe a banker's family, but his dream was to be a general. Right. right. That was that was his childhood dream, and he was always closely associated. Like he got his scientific funding from the military. And he was always closely sort of ex associated with the military and with militarism. Um, and, yeah, that's it's just kind of the, the person he was, um, you know. So we, we, we kind of look back on a figure like Einstein, even though he had a, obviously many connections to sort of the military history of the 20th century. Um, we, we still kind of find him to be a much more sort of palatable figure because mm. he wasn't he as into it own. as von Neumann was. Yeah, he was not nearly <laughs> as into it as von Neumann was. Like, yeah. you know, like Einstein had regrets about the atom bomb, but von Neumann had zero, right? Like he was just like, no, we just need to use more. We'll just nuke all our enemies. <laughs> then everything will be fine. Like, I mean, he, he's just like unbelievable, right? Dude is nuts. Uh, yeah. But like yeah. Price was something of a disciple or like as he was in, in the same kind of milieu and was... Um, kind of very much into the same ideas. And, and Price recognized these ideas um, were, through Hamilton's work, the application of this computational logic to the study of human behavior. Like, Price does this kind of synthesis between the computer von Neumann sort of world and what Hamilton's got going on with genetics um, and starts to see, you know, people as just soft machines controlled by onboard computers. Um, and they, they sort of, they become buddies and they develop their work a bit further. Um, it's it's quite in interesting that you know we see this this sort of combination of ideas between Price and Hamilton here, um, and the sort of complex of ideas they represent. Um, it's very interesting how they went on to become sort of mainstays of like the alt right and uh, like so for example. Um, Price was a, you know, sort of a, a like his hobby was to be like a skeptic, right? Uh, like a, somebody would go around and debunk things. Um, and I mean, one thing we sort of seen in like kind of like the wake of Gamergate, but like around that sort of time period was like a real like harsh turn to the right among the skeptic community. Yeah, all the sort of the, the new atheist crowds turned into... Yeah, the new atheists yeah. and, like, evolutionary psychologists, skeptics, like, this whole sort of complex of, like, uh, liberal ideas with an, uh, an, an elective affinity to one another um, has made this really intense turn towards right-wing politics. Yeah, they're, um, they're all neo-monarchists now. Like, it's fucking crazy. That's <laughs> 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 where we've come to. Yeah. And I mean, and, and I, I think that uh, that sort of gives some credence to uh, the, the, the sort of tack or the, the angle that Curtis is taking in this episode about... The relationship between these ideas and sort of like foreign policy and the place of the West in the world, right? Mm. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, and this this is um this this set of ideas gets solidified as the selfish gene theory, um, and like now it now it's got a name, you know, and it can it can go from there. But um, they they also sort of realize that like once they've kind of developed these kind of ideas, they also realize that von Neumann's work on uh you know his dream of like self replicating machines um was already done like. It turns out that we are self-replicating machines. We we are the cellular automata that von Neumann dreamed of. Um, and that, yeah, this is a dangerous set of ideas here, really here, because it like it, it annihilates morality, because it sort of means that like every action, good or bad, is a rational strategy being pursued by the genes, the the onboard computers. You know? So we see um, we see here the way that uh, again you sort of get ideas from one field that enter another field and then come back to the original field and therefore justify right. themselves. They right. Have a, they have a and mutual justification where it's like, it kind of, in actuality, it's what, when you take the two ideas and put them on a shelf beside each other, they just look good to get, together. They, they look right beside each other. And there's like a mutually reinforcing, they're like a matched pair, right? Right. It's like they, they look good together because they actually come from the same origin, right? Like it's it's they've like the idea's gone out and and made a sojourn into some other field and then it comes back to its origin. So you we see here like um you know the influence of like Darwinism on the development of game theory and then the influence of game theory on von Neumann's uh theory of uh uh, self-replicating automata and then that uh, idea's influence on biology which of course is going back to Darwinism right so that it's kind of like this this circular effect that happens where um, you find justification in other fields and it feels like oh well like oh wow that's incredible that these 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 two things fit together so well but they actually have a shared history that you don't know about you're not aware about yourself and so what is actually kind of like an accident of intellectual history becomes warrant for belief in the idea that you've developed mm, or stumbled yeah. upon and an accident's the right word for it like it's it's just pure coincidence that this sort of stuff would uh, would kind of be co-developed, really, and um, these people would be in the right place at the right time to make the kind of connections, or I mean, wrong place at the wrong time, um, to kind of go with this stuff. But, like, it's, um, yeah, and again, it's, it's so weird how they managed to invert the kind of, um, what we all sort of know to be how, like, genes actually work and how societies and people actually work like the the agency is is completely upside down here um but it's also like it's strange to me in that like what they're what they're doing is um they're using the computers they have at hand as a model for everything else but then what it presumes it presumes that the the object under study like the genes for example are as complex as the computer which is like not not actually true at that era. Like that genes are still massively more com complex in their computational sort of stuff than things are. But it, what I mean is that it, it presumes comprehensibility. Like it's, it's like what we saw in the previous episode with the thing about nature and like oh na nature as a machine or as a wondrous system. And like I guess like at at a it it could very well turn out that like reality is a machine. Like it is an an, an automata of some kind. But that doesn't mean that it behaves 
on it, it, that its behavior is as comprehensible as the MacBook that's sitting in front of you, right? Like it's, it, there, there is a, there is probably a parallel, but like that doesn't mean that you're going to be able to understand it on that level. Uh, and with the nature thing, we saw people simplifying their observations of nature to force it into the model of the computers they had at the time. And I think we're seeing something very similar here where it's like, oh, we have computers. We also have genes, which seem to be like computers. Therefore, they're equivalent and we can operate on both of them intellectually in the same way. Um, but like, no, I mean, the, the, the behaviors that emerge from actual organisms are like many, 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 many orders of magnitude more complex than you're going to get out of a, a Windows 98 box, you know? <laughs> it's, oof. Right, right. <laughs> it's all, it's um, all kind of wrong-headed, really, <laughs> when you look at it. Yeah, and I, I guess we have these sort of... Um, we just we just have these like paradigm technologies that we use as a model of reality. Like the trains, uh, right? Like this. Yeah, the train or the clock or the the the, the computer... Um, and so on. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I remember when I was studying, uh, computation, you know, it definitely like sort of occurred to me that like you can think about reality in, in computational terms as sort of like a non-terminating automaton, but it, I guess it's, 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 it's good to, at least have the distance to understand that that is a possible way of thinking about the world as yeah. opposed to a necessary one. <laughs> yeah. um, and the, the frightening thing is that um, it's very easy to lose track of that. Right. Um, because you just, you, you, you know, you start thinking about the world and you start picking up all these ideas about what uh, is around you. And, you never really know what the origin of those ideas were. Yeah, yeah, Um, definitely. Um, And so that's just kind of part of being a part of this big social construct uh, that is our general intellect, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Um, And, like, I I think I kind of want to clarify as well for the listeners that, like, I'm... I think it's it's probably quite easy for me to laugh at these sort sort of things now because, like... It is kind of clear where the wrongness in these kind of ideas was, but then it, I probably would have been swept up in the idea at the time anyway. So, you know, like it's it's like um, our our like a, a later critique um, obviously comes from a later time period and has a different set of ideas surrounding it, and like the the general intellect has been developed a bit further. So it's not like. I don't know. It's it's kind of like it's it's actually kind of hard to fault people for falling into this kind of stuff at the time. Um, yeah, well, it's that old quote about Minerva's owl, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it only takes flight at dusk or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's like we 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 only have wisdom in retrospect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's a uh, kind of kind of easy. <laughs> Easy to criticize. I know this this stuff is presented in a way that it's actually quite comprehensible as to like where where it went wrong, um, and gives us some hint as to what we might want to do in the future to kind of develop ideas that like do use technology or whatever um, to improve human lives, but that don't maybe don't or at least try not to fall into the same traps of um, drawing direct equivalence between 
machines and then the sort of subject under study. Um, yeah, and I think it's it's kind of going back to our Red Plenty episode. Um, there is that part in the chapter about Academic Gordok there, which is told from the perspective of a biologist, right? Um, and I think the author there, uh, like a Spufford, um, in creating this character who is not a computer scientist or a cybernetician, but is talking to the computer scientists and cybernetitians. Uh, I think he was trying trying to get at that idea of like the sort of relative distance and how having a, a slightly different outlook on the world can provide a little bit of critical thinking um, capacities, right? Because um, you, you you kind of see that character get drawn into this cybernetic paradigm but there's always a certain amount of skepticism that she has um of course she's she's on board with all of these ideas about darwinism but <laughs> i guess you know can't win them being all. that outsider uh to some extent can be useful nevertheless yeah certainly um but any, anyway, yeah, so the ne- next part of the film brings us on back to the Congo, actually, uh, to uh, one Diane Fossey, who's up in the mountains, uh, studying gorillas and um, trying to kind of like, um, trying to convince the world, essentially, that the, the, the these primates are not uh, dumb brutes, but are actually quite, quite close to uh, to humans in their sort of, um, uh, their, their intellect or their social behavior and so on. Um, but she is kind of like caught up in this, this uh, outbreak of war in the Congo. Um this kind of rebellion wants to take over the, the mineral rich. Of course, it's always the mineral rich part of the Eastern Congo that they want to take over. Um, and the rebellion turns to horrific, uh, monstrous sort of uh, activity. Um, yeah, it's kind of led by these um, white mercenaries, right? Uh, and I, I think the, the, the sort of crucial point that they are, that Curtis is introducing here is that the practices of extreme um, violence that we associate with the Congo conflict or with the Rwanda conflict were not uh, developed organically in the Congo, but were introduced by conquering whites, right? Uh, that the, these mercenaries in starting this civil war escalated the level of violence in the country to a level that it previously had not had. And, and the reason they were able to introduce this, this, these like new violent practices um, was because they were extremely racist yeah. and did not see blacks as human beings. Yeah, there's an um, interview with uh, with one um, of these these mercs, uh, and yeah, he, he, he uses the words exactly. He doesn't see black people as human; uh, they're they're animals um, uh, to him. And like, there's a there's a certain kind of irony here in that. Like, I mean, Diane Fossey is kind of um, trying to convince people to treat animals well, but we don't even treat human beings well. <laughs> like, right. And th- there's a really interesting question that the interviewer gives this mercenary um, in saying, like, would you ever treat a white person like this? And it's kind of like um, the mercenary is really sort of on the fence about it, right? Because he's like, well, 
I've never really had the occasion to do that to a white person. You can kind of see the gears turning uh, in his head. Yeah, and, it, and, it, and it's like, but maybe he could if he was given the opportunity, right? Like that, that this this kind of extremely dehumanizing violence that is characteristic of the uh, imperialist and colonialist adventures that this guy has been on in Africa um, could become more generalized than just the specific case of oppressing black mm. people. Right, right? because once and you've established that some people aren't people, well... How, how big is the group of some that aren't people? You know, it's like uh, exactly. you, you begin and, practicing and on this this group, and it's like, well, there's also these these people we don't like who are different characteristics, right. and then we snowball from there, right? We've established that people are not people anymore, you know? And, and that's what we see happen with the ongoing war that outlasts these, these sort of mercenary adventurers, Um which is that the practices of racist violence become delinked from racism yeah, and just yeah. become free-floating practices of violence. Just ordinary violence at that point, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. They become normalized. Um, and, and so, yeah, you can kind of see, like, that transition going on in this guy's head as he's talking. And like, yeah, just just an absolutely terrifying individual. By yeah, the way. like really, just, just not good to look at. Frightening, at all. truly yeah. frightening. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. It is. Um, again, this is actually the, uh, quite a disturbing film. Like, um, this is the darkest of the of the three by far. Um, but uh, Diane Fossey anyway flees across the border east into Rwanda. And for for, for the listener, like uh, Rwanda is actually quite a small country to the east of uh, of Congo. Um, but she flees there and establishes a new camp up in the mountains there um, and kind of, like, digs in, right? Like, she kind of retreats from humanity a bit and, like, starts to really protect the interests of the gorillas above all else. And she goes as far as terrorizing the, the local uh, human population um, and kind of playing, again, this this thing that Europeans do in Africa where they uh, mistreat Africans because of some ideals that are, they've imported, well, she's she's exactly reproducing the behavior of pitting the uh, Tutsis against the Hutus, right? Uh, she's found this one, you know, like, true chosen people who just happen to not be human in this case um, and is putting them up on a pedestal uh, to the exclusion of their neighbors. Um, and, and actually, she ends up inciting violence against... Uh, the chimps, or sorry, the the uh, it was the gorillas, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh um, yeah, the, the uh, she she like fucking bombs them with tear gas and stuff like the villagers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then the locals retaliate against the <laughs> ones that she holds closest to her. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so she ends up initiating a cycle of violence, which is quite which parallels the cycle of violence that we see in Rwanda. Yeah, it does. Uh, among, among the 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 people there. Yeah, it's um. No, it's it's bad. It's a uh, pretty pretty bad stuff, and like it's, um, it's again this this kind of like there is a theme in this whole series of this kind of repetition of uh, of the same sort of um, same cycles over and over again. Um, the same way like the uh, same sort of financial crashes happened a couple of times in a row. Um, that, yeah, this the same cycle of violence and the same kind of uh, dehumanization of humans is. Uh, yeah, and I mean, uh, just sort of that 
that point we were talking about, it, it just occurred to me now to mention that uh, the, the point we were talking about, the sort of practices of racist violence becoming delinked from racism um, and becoming generalized, um, that's absolutely the origins of fascism, right? Um, it is... It is the practices of violence and rule by violence that were perpetrated by Europe against the rest of the world coming back and being used in Europe itself. Mm, yeah. Right. Certainly. Um, so, um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like the big cautionary thing there is like be really fucking careful what kind of violence you wish for, you know, like that. Even if, if you go down the sort of path of like thinking that some violence is legitimate or like is useful in the short term against these kind of people, et cetera, et cetera, like that, the, those, those chickens will come home to roost eventually. Um, it's bad stuff when it does. Um, I mean, it's bad stuff initially when you're like beating down that, that other person, but like, Jesus, yeah. If you, th if you think you're going to keep that distance forever, mm, no, <laughs> it's not how history works, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, like we, we kind of switch away from that back to Price in London in the, in the 70s, where um, he's kind of gone off the rails a bit and like converted to Christianity and uh, is now like really, really dedicating himself to helping the homeless. Like contrary to all of his theorizing about like selfish genes and such, he's going out of his way to prove the opposite, that he will help anyone regardless of whether he thinks they're a close relative or not yeah it's it's very strange because he 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 began to think that um his selfish gene theory was so insightful and uh such an incredible world-changing idea that it could have only been provided to him by means of divine inspiration um, and so he kind of took it as like a religious burden that he had to deal with. Right. Like he he like people as people say, he became saint like. Right. That that he was he was sort of seized by um, divine inspiration and behaved in ways that were uh, completely abnormal socially. Mm. Um, yeah, and he he sort of like um, there's a I think there's an exact thing here, but like he he takes the teachings of Christ to be an exact code that he must execute. Um, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That's kind of reminiscent of like uh, uh, Saint Francis, right? Um, that's kind of like that. That was the problem people had with Saint Francis was that he's <laughs> like he was just he was too into it. Yeah. Um, and uh, and 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 even with the Fran the Franciscans later on, to some extent. No, yeah, he gets way into this, and like he's um, like, and I think there's there's a bit from his bi biographer as well here that like he think he even he thinks that like he was trying to kind of undo the theory, like to prove it to be incorrect, because he was so stunned by what what he'd sort of discovered and uh, and shaken by it. Um, yeah, it's 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 weird. It's kind of strange to me that like um, like. Price needs to go to these kind of lengths to prove the theory wrong when it's not even that intuitive a theory anyway, right? Like that almost anyone you pull off the street could tell you that like, no, yeah, I, I would help a person who I didn't know to be a close relative or whatever. You know, that like altruism isn't a sort of an alien process to people, but yet Price needs to go through this incredible um, 
uh, just just this incredible lifestyle change to kind of prove to himself. It, it it really makes me wonder, like, what what kind of a mind that is, you know? <laughs> that like the what what it seems well, to be yeah, common sense mean, is so alien to him, you know. <laughs> the form of altruism that he practices is very strange, right? That kind of um, indiscriminate uh, altruism is something that people hardly ever practice. Like if he um, if he goes to if he's at the park and there's a homeless person there without shoes, he will take his shoes off and give them to him. Instead of say going to a shop and buying shoes to give to the person, he'll just hand his own over. Like there's something really weird about the the behavior. Um, I think it is. It's fair to say it's going off the rails. Like yeah, it it kind of reminds me. Um, who was it? Uh, I'm trying to remember his name, but it's escaping me. But I remember when I was at UBC, at University of British Columbia, there was a utilitarian who came to um, speak about utilitarian philosophy. Um, and he was, I think, this guy who was behind, like, um, this idea of, like, very, like, sort of, means tested and like maximally effective charity giving and like basically trying to use utilitarian ideas in order to make arguments that like you pretty much need to live your entire life or oriented towards maximizing the amount of altruistic output you can create that sounds like um, a lot of spreadsheet work I probably won't be. Able yeah, to do. yeah, and and, and and just like I remember at that time that like I went to that lecture and I was just like came out of it shaking my head like <laughs> like this is why ethics will never amount to anything was yeah. kind of like my takeaway <laughs> like this is just the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard because um because you know it that kind of like sort of Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, approach to changing the world um, is always very focused on the behaviors of the giver, right? Um, and sort of like maximizing their behaviors. But really, if you want to change the world, you can't do it on the basis of giving, you know, like th that's where these this kind of thing that like Price was doing is sort of very strange to us. Right. Because we understand that every relationship like that is is a two way street. And 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 people who are the recipients of charity are also individuals with their own personalities and their own dispositions and their own behaviors. Um, and. This kind of, like, indiscriminate altruism, it it almost doesn't, like, it's, it is addressing the person as an abstract individual instead of as a concrete individual, right? Like, it's like, I am giving to you because of your humanity, not because of who you are. Um, and that's where it be, that is a thing that is, sort of maximally altruistic and maximally abstract. Um, but as, you know, um, Price himself came to understand, his 
his sort of feverish quest to do good in the world and to be altruistic really didn't amount to much of anything. You know, it wasn't very effective in actually making anyone's life that much better. Um, yeah, because like, I mean, like, it's it's entirely palliative, right? That that like, there's no there's no attempt there to alter the kind of social relations that put people on the streets in one of the wealthiest nations on in the history of the world, right? Like, you know, Britain as of the mid 20th century, it's, it's purely like doing this performance of taking his own shoes off and giving them to people and that sort of stuff. Like it's, it kind of can't amount to much, like aside from making one or two, like a handful of people out of the like fucking countless homeless in, in London at that time, uh, feel marginally better for one night or whatever, you know, it's, yeah, um, really quite strange. And there's this like a, there's a hell of a performance going on there. And he's like, I think um, we'll get we'll get back to him in a little bit. But like, there's a um, he's definitely like trying to prove something to either himself or to um, or to some deity, you know. Um, but before before we cut back to him, we get this little detour back to uh, Fossey's camp in in now Rwanda, uh, where the um, this uh, this idea of like. Um, you know the 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 apes as being quite quite close to us and um and such is being popularized as like david attenborough is visiting and and uh, filming um making a film um and like what's interesting here is that he, he kind of really harps on the connection and the similarity and the the, re- the the relatedness between the gorillas and humans um and this is kind of like the way the way Curtis puts it is that this is the birth of a kind of another liberal dream, the kind of like web of nature, all that sort of stuff. He's kind of calling back to the second episode. But um, what strikes me as really interesting here is that like, yeah, again, Edinburgh is really drilling home this thing of like these these creatures are very closely related to us. They're very similar to us. We have this deep connection. But it's basically the selfish gene stuff again, where it's like the argument is we should care about these creatures, but because they're related to us. And, like, sea, sea urchins are just fucking way off in the distance in terms of relatedness, so fuck them, right? Or, like, but, like, the, the implication here is that if they weren't closely related, or if we didn't pr- place a high value on relatedness, then we wouldn't give a shit about them. Like, I don't know, I mean, like, they're kind of cool creatures, you should probably care about them anyway, like, and not trample all over them and fuck them up, right? But, like, this is, like, implicitly doing the selfish gene thing, you know? Right. And and also um, that's sort of uh, projecting projecting fantasies onto onto them in the in the same way that the the colonial enterprise has done in Africa all along. Right. Um, uh, Yeah, it's 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 absolutely kind of in the same vein. And and like that that documentary in the context of of this documentary right that that documentary footage uh sort of um takes on quite a sinister sort of tone it does Um, yeah yeah because like he says something like um oh if if there was ever any hope to escape the human condition it lies with them or something kind of it reads a a little bit too twilight zone for my liking um and i'm generally a fan of attenborough especially his later work but like something quite disconcerting about what the way all this kind of stuff is put yeah, yeah, especially when you, like, know the context of what Fosse was doing there, um, what, like, there was, like, the wars going on, and, like, it's just, uh, yeah, it's it's quite uh, quite unsettling. Mm. But, yeah, and then, like, immediately we sort of cut back to um, 
Price, who's uh, no longer with us at this point, uh, he's committed suicide, and he's, uh, his daughter is reading out his, uh, his suicide note, and she points to a kind of like interesting line that um, the um, with the hound of heaven closing in on him, um, which is a reference to a poem that is a, kind of about this notion that we, we we may think we are free individuals, but God is coming for us. Like he, the hound of heaven is pursuing us and he'll eventually catch us and uh, devour our souls. Um, yeah, well, it's this idea that like, we have free will, but God's hound will come and take it from us. Yeah, which is right. Really that like dark. we will we will become like puppets because the 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 hound of heaven will just like take that from us. Yeah, and that's that's quite um, sad. That like um, these were the sort of thoughts running through a person's head like uh, towards the end. Like it's. Um, it does. It does seem as if Price was like desperately trying to claw back agency and sort of freedom from the clutches of the kind of the theory he'd cooked up or like helped to cook up. Um, but that ultimately he couldn't escape this this feeling that yeah, like that there was something pursuing him and was going to capture him eventually. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess I can kind of sympathize to an extent because uh, I was as brought up with some fairly fatalistic religious ideas and definitely left a huge mark on the rest of my life. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that, but yeah, this, this kind of idea of trying to get agency, this desperate um, desire for, for, for uh, independence from these kind of alien wills and whims um, is, is something I can, I can sympathize with a lot. So oh, certainly. Um, yeah, definitely. And like, um, but like the, the next sort of thing we're brought on to is that like, like that obviously we are recording this in, you know, the future, <laughs> 2018, but like that Price and Hamilton's theories, this selfish gene stuff really took off. It became a big part of the popular consciousness and like no, no thanks to Richard Dawkins with his uh, book of the same title, The Selfish Gene. Um, and it's again a repetition of the same stuff, right? That free will is massively exaggerated. We are in fact directed by these onboard computers called genes, who are using us as sock puppets to um, project their information through through time. Um, yeah, it's it's very it's really grim stuff. And like I think the way the way Dawkins speaks about it is even kind of strange. That like um, it's a, and like this is a paradox that uh, Curtis points out that these these guys, these uh, rationalists and atheists and so on, had basically reinvented the immortal soul. That, like, Kurt, uh, Dawkins speaks about, like, um, wanting, like, he, he wants to posit the immortal replicator as the agent of life, not humans. And it's like, what the, f- what the fuck is this immortal replicator thing? Like, this is a religious idea, isn't it? Like, it's, there's a deep religiosity to this. <laughs> he's, he's, like, absolutely sort of constructed a theory of, like, transmigration of the soul. Yeah, right? yeah. Like it's like oh, the 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 flesh, the flesh is insignificant, and what really matters is like the the immortal replicator moving from instantiation to instantiation. It's it's almost a kind of uh, it's it's similar to to some religious ideas about how the soul works, right? Um, it's not really a not really a uh, a Christian idea in any sense, but it is it is a kind of religious idea in a yeah, way. Yeah, I, th- I think maybe the notion of um, some part of the self surviving death maybe fits the Christian thing, but in general, it's not. They're like they don't. Yeah, it, it tends not to go in for that quite, quite the same way. But um, this is this is strange, right? That like it's like 
it seems as if you really can't escape from this these kinds of um religious ideas right like even and this this kind of parallels the stuff from uh, the Ayn Rand episode where even the true believers couldn't um escape from the kind of uh, cons- the, the the conclusions of, the, of their their thoughts right that like but even these like dedicated rationalists and um avowed atheists have like basically reconstructed a god for themselves um very strange yeah um and i think it's always useful to look around at the commonplaces that are um told to us by social science or by science in general um and sort of like see what the religious parallels or roots might be because um i mean obviously religion is a huge part of our intellectual heritage and the extent to which we escape or improve on that um is uh variable (laughs) Um, (laughs) certainly yeah (laughs) um no, it's it's like uh yeah, it's it casts such a long shadow that like uh it's pretty hard to get out from under it, you know. This is a thread that Curtis takes up uh later in uh hypernormalization, uh one of his later documentaries, but I think part of the obsession of this sort of set of of rationalists, new atheists, etc. Um, with Islam is 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 um, is their obsession with uh, suicide bombing, right? Um, their their obsession with uh, with this kind of um, either altruistic or nihilistic, depending on how you look at it, uh, act of violence, um, and it it comes back to the kind of founding ideas that we're talking about here about self-sacrifice and altruism Mm -hmm. um yeah well that's that's something we kind of missed actually that um as price was developing these ideas he sort of expanded on hamilton's idea that like um a gene could do an altruistic act to help people that were close genes that were closely related to it but that the the inverse is also sort of true that like a gene might be able to uh, destroy itself if it also meant harming uh, others that were distantly related. Uh, yeah, which is like straight up game theory shit, right? Yeah, like yeah. this is this is uh, these are these are definitely ideas from that, and you know, obviously related to military conflict because that's where game theory comes from. So it's yeah, it's very interesting um, that whole sort of response because. It's maybe almost like the um, the obsession with that that form of violence, with suicide bombing among uh, these kind of like rationalist types, um, has to do with like, well, if they just understood our theory, right? Like, then then they would see that like they're they're kind of extreme. Uh, altruistic act get for like whatever religious or patriotic um, motivation is nothing more than this uh, simple instinct to destroy what is alien right Um, that there is actually nothing to their ideas it's just 
it's just what we say it is, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like, if, oh, if, if, yeah, if, if only they'd come around to our way of thinking, they would... Um, but, of course, like, they, they never then considered that they're, uh, you know, sponsoring of a, like, drone bombing fucking campaign that, that annihilates... Um, uh, is civilians is is anything other than that projection of simple survival as well? That like, uh, well, and I mean, I think it it it's easy to see how it leads to a kind of like clash of civilizations or um, this kind of like alt right mentality because um, it just like everything that it like it it kind of forecloses the idea of coexistence with that which is alien, right? Um, it's just like, oh, well, they're alien enough that, of course, our genes are going to make us fight them. Right. Yeah, That's which is that. like, it's, it, it's, it's such a, it, it's a weird, it's a, well, I mean, we've already established it's a bizarre worldview, but like it completely forecloses on any kind of cooperation between people who are not basically first cousins, right? Like that um, every research lab in the world or every office building that has people from all over the world or various ethnicities all peacefully coexisting and just getting on with their lives, that never figures into these guys' uh, thoughts at all, right? Like, they're they're still fixated on this idea that, like, um, the genetic relatedness is the sole determinator of um, how the how behavior will, will play out. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and as Curtis says, you know, it's kind of a way of disavowing the complexity of the world or... Uh, trying to get a simple answer to the way things are uh, in the face of all the violence that we we see around us and our various failed attempts at at improving things. Yeah, and that's that's the kind of stretch that Curtis brings us into to kind of um, come towards the end where we we get back to Rwanda in 1994, where um, the, uh, the the government at the time just embarked on a, a campaign of actual extermination of the Tutsi minority. Um, is, decided they wanted to be rid of them entirely. Um, and of course, like in, in the media, this was painted as a, a flare-up of these like ancient ancient tribal hatreds or whatever, which was just re- regurgitating the same old myth um, that had been invented in the 30s. Um, yeah, ancient tribal hatreds that have been made possible by a system of racial classification that was implemented by the Belgians and which registered people according to their ethnicity so they were very easy to identify and kill later on right like it's ancient tribal hatreds indeed like you know like bureaucracy ancient tribal thing that every tribe has yeah and this this is entirely artificial and engineered and created and this 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 slaughter was a direct consequence of all that that stuff that 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 hateful fantasy that the Belgians cooked up um, and found useful for their their rule over that country, and yeah, the ID cards like what a, what an excellent sorting mechanism they're they're now a passport to life and death. Um, and there's there's like it's like, but there's interviews then with um, like uh, there's there's one that's particularly kind of heartbreaking. This interview with a, a Hutu ma- uh, man who uh, says that like uh, Tutsis want to kill Hutus and live alone in this country. We can't allow that to happen. We are human beings too. Yeah, so it's those liberal ideas about humanity and liberty that just get repeated and turn into um, justification for genocide. Yeah, and I mean, but like, I, I, I don't doubt either that like, that guy on camera fully believed that this was an existential threat. That like, the, because he had like 
been told like that the, the Tutsis are an alien race that have come here to subjugate you. That's 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 what that's what the myth was, and like no no reason not to believe it really. Um, yeah, it's, it's ghastly, ghastly stuff. Um, but this is where the chaos really sp- spirals out of control, where um, the Tutsis push back, obviously, the c- country collapses into chaos. Uh, refugees flee across the border into the Congo, which is now named Zaire. Uh, camps are set up, Western aid comes. Um, but the camps are also like protecting Hutu assassins who are sneaking into the camps to uh, butcher people in there. And like, there's, I think this is a thing that... Um, I think Curtis or maybe someone else refers to elsewhere as kind of like the, the birth of odierism in media where um, this was the first time where I mean first but like first time where on camera you had things like people trying to do newscasts where they were like these these refugees are the victims of this uh, bad thing and then behind them there's like outbreaks of chaos as the refugees are fighting each other and then like it all devolves into this kind of thing of like all we can really conclude is that odier in a place called foreign, sad things happened, is the kind of tone of reporting from there on out, right? That, like, when you're kind of faced with that, just, like, the vortex of of madness of, like, people you thought who were the good guys in this good guy, bad guy narrative uh, turn out to be slashing each other to bits as well. Uh, Newscaster just shrugs and goes, I don't fucking know. (laughs) Yeah, right. It's it's like a... As as he says, the the, the camps, the refugee camps, uh, sort of... They aggravated the problem, um, and uh, I remember uh, with the start of the Syrian refugee crisis, um, there this was like a major sort of talking point. Um, was like, oh, but are we going to let in the bad people? Are we going to let in the ISIS? Like, you know, uh, are we going to like the, these 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 sort of rogue agents who are among the refugees? Which, uh, in the case of uh, these these camps outside of uh, Rwanda, was uh, actually a major concern, um, and the response um, from uh, most people on the left in in Europe uh, regarding the Syrian refugee crisis was like, "Well, we should just let everybody in, and we'll sort it out." Um, and that's the same response that. Uh, the people who set up the uh, refugee aid camps outside uh, Rwanda took, mm. uh, except it had very dire consequences. Yeah, um, because this so, spirals like, out of way out of control. Like, I mean, the, you have the the eruptions of violence in the camps, and then the uh, Sire military show up, and then there's more chaos, and then Sire's uh, president or ruler uh, Mobutu falls, and then you know, this this consumer boom is kicking off in the West and driving up the prices of minerals and everyone wants in, right? Like, everyone's piling into this region. Uh, yeah, East, countries East from all over Africa are sending troops in to quote-unquote establish peace, but are actually there to just get in on the resource boom, right? Yeah, because this this is East East Congo, West Rwanda, which is, this, which is where the mining operations are. And yeah, control of those mines means big bucks um at this at this time um and everyone dogpiles in and it just chaos escalates and escalates and into the middle of this then we kind of loop back around to the start of the the episode with hamilton arriving to uh chase up his wacko uh hiv theory um there's a bit a bit of a note here that like at this point he'd, he'd gone to a really dark place in his kind of research um that like he was basically a eugenicist now that like he'd gone to the the, the final conclusion of his research was that um 
we should never use medical technology to prolong the lives of, um, you know, the, quote, gen- genetically inferior. Um, right. It's yeah. uh, instead of being like the kind of eugenics that sort of gets battered around uh, based on genetic engineering, it's the sort of more like Malthusian ver- variety of genetics, which is to basically let the weak die so as to improve the um, the genetic stock. Um, and the, the favorite word of the, um, the current... Uh, alt-right sort of neo-monarchist crowd as well as here the uh the degeneration gotta protect against that degeneration you know yeah pretty bad but i mean he he'd, he'd, he'd eventually gotten onto this idea that um uh an idea that turns out to be absolute bullshit but um that the the uh hiv had been created accidentally in the congo while people were trying to research a polio vaccine and they were uh, i don't know like using chimps to experiment on or something um but anyway, he goes there and he, he sort of wants to track... He, he's got a grudge, essentially, against medicine now. Like, he's he's convinced that big medicine is or big science is, is uh, covering this up. Um, yeah, like, there's a sort of world-spanning conspiracy to, um, to provide medical care to people who do not deserve it <laughs> in order to make money. Right? Oh, Jesus. This guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, as if you need a, a conspiracy to fucking do that, right? Like, it has to be this international cartel of lizard people that are, like, forcing uh, medicine to, like, save people's lives and, you know, put babies in incubators and that sort of stuff. Like, that's, that's very clearly directed by a fucking conspiracy. <laughs> what is right. with this dude? <laughs> it's yeah, it's just wild. Oh. But, yeah, so, like, he, he kind of, like... Um, he arrives and he's, he's wandering through these, the wreckage of Congolese society with this war kicking off all over um, around him. And um, the way Curtis puts it is that this is a, a vivid expression of what happened at the end of the 20th century to the Western dream of transforming the world for the better. Like you, you, this guy, like just wandering through this um, this flaming wreckage of um, all these kind of like, um, I don't know, like, a conflict that was fueled by, firstly, like, uh, European, uh, you know, conquest, and then later fueled by, like, liberal ideas of, like, oh, no, you guys should totally liberate yourselves from those other guys, and then spiraled even further when, uh, you know, aid agencies kind of, like, tried to do the right thing. Um, And then Hamilton goes through, goes, like, wanders through all this and eventually gets killed by an aspirin pill. Um... It's, I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe Curtis isn't wrong there. Like, this is kind of a picture of how, how we sort of collectively lost faith in the possibility of improving the world, you know? Right. Um, yeah, and, and uh, he brings up all these cases, and um, he suggests that we're kind of, like, grasping for ways to disavow responsibility. Yeah, um, yeah. That's the yeah. way it closes out here, that, like, um, Hamil- Hamilton and Price's ideas have become very, very influential. And, like, it's possible that we want this fatalistic theory of humans being piloted by computers, genes, you know. Um, we want that to be true because it would absolve us from the responsibility for all these kind of disasters. And, like, how it kind of seems at first blush that, like, regard- no matter what we do, everything turns out badly anyway. Like, that even... Even the the most sort of noble spirit of uh, of liberty and so on can lead to these um, 
these these crises and just like escalating violence. Um, and if we see ourselves as helpless computing machines instead, then we kind of have both an excuse and an explanation for our failure to so far change the world for the better. Um, right. Um, yeah, and 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 I think that uh, we kind of see it take um, a number of sort of different tacks, like this way of addressing the situation we're in like on the one hand we have that kind of like alt-right vision that develops um and then there's there's the sort of like obstinate liberal optimists like uh pinker right um just like well actually everything's fine and everything's getting better all the time and there's really nothing to worry about and it's it's all like it's all the salad days are here to stay, boys. Um, but uh, <laughs> you know, um, we 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 also have uh, the kind of ecological vision that Curtis brings up in the in the second episode, right? That is is about we we kind of see um, the situation we're in as as part of like this system that is beyond our individual control right so instead of being about like genetics um and the way that determines the behavior of individuals it's it's more about how system processes de determine our our collective uh behavior right yeah and i, th I think you can um, read that from the title even uh that the the, the title of this film being um what is it the, mach right. the machine and the monkey and the monkey and the machine or the other way around that like in in one of the the kind of general theme here is like throughout the whole set of films is um, humans not having agency. In fact, that like we are either components inside of a machine or we are piloted by machines, um, and it's that's that's the totalizing kind of force. If you come to believe both of those at the same time, that um, not only are you piloted by your genes and have no control over your actual kind of actions, really. Um, and you are also a cog in a larger system. You're kind of screwed from both kind of angles there. Like it's um, where do you where do you go from there to like improve anything or change? Um, and sort of ends it on that title card: machines without loving grace. Yeah, right? yeah. And it's it's kind of ambiguous whether we are machines who are without the loving grace of God or if we have created machines that are without loving grace or if we are because of our failures uh machines who are unable to have grace right yeah. have loving grace right i i, I suspect uh, that the i suspect that what maybe curtis wants to get at is that in all three cases these um applications of machinic ideas to uh, human systems to biological natural systems or to like um you know what have you political stuff they all turn out to be false like applications that like it turns out that nature isn't a machine it turns out that we are not machines that like i think i think that's kind of what he's maybe trying to get at that like we we have created these machine systems that are are in fact without grace like they didn't save us from anything um in, instead they created more chaos and it's I think it's kind of a call to shed those ideas or at least can massively revise them in light of the kind of evidence that like it's time to stop acting as if we are 
ourselves mere computers. And it's also time to stop acting as if our society is also a machine and that the natural world is a machine. It's like these these ideas haven't worked. They haven't liberated us in the way that they were supposed to. And so, I mean, I could, I'm not I'm not in any way saying we need to go anarcho-primitivist at all. Like that's that's it's it's not an argument against machines or against technology. It's against projecting technology onto everything and then expecting the world system to behave like a computer and expecting the natural system to behave like a computer because of our projections. Um, so it's, it's like, it's, it's such a downer episode, right? Like this, this, this one is a dark, dark film, but I think my reading is that it's actually kind of an slightly optimistic kind of call to really discredit these ideas that that selfish gene shit needs to go. Um, the idea of a permanent balance of nature needs to go. And like when we're, when we're maybe free of those, we can kind of, um, switch off these machines, <laughs> you know, the, the, the graceless machines that we've created. Um, right. Maybe. Um, I don't know. Yeah. It, it does at least give sort of a focus, um, something to, uh, address, um, is this, uh, kind of machinic projection, um, and, and construction. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, it just kind of leaves off there, right? Like, the, yeah, this just... this one this one skids to a halt <laughs> pretty abruptly. Um, I, I think like the first episode had the most graceful end, like with that kind of lovely shot of the the pong game. Um, but this one, it, it's it's again this problem where I think there's 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 easily an hour and a half of material in each of these films, but it's cut cut to an hour. Um, and yeah, I could, I could see this kind of being a pretty tight squeeze trying to get. Uh, every aspect of each of these two intertwined stories in there but um yeah it just sort of leaves off and it doesn't really i suppose in a way that's kind of positive that like well um that curtis doesn't have uh less like he he ends on a question like is it possible that we have latched onto these fatalistic ideas because we want to see ourselves as helpless computers instead of like it's it's something it's sort of reminiscent of the um the sort of psychoanalytic like death drive that like if if we are terrified of our vitality then seeing ourselves as helpless and seeing ourselves as like um on yeah helpless unable to help ourselves we we are mere automata is it is the death instinct like it is it is a, an instinct towards stasis and towards catatonia and i, I think i think yeah I, mean, I think that that works like it is basically because we are petrified that if we do anything ever again that it will be bad right right and and uh i think that this is a point that curtis sort of gets into in hypernormalization right that he's talking about um the desire to maintain stability at any cost and the problems it gets us into right like i think he kicks that documentary off with like the story of kissinger uh sort of playing the balance of power in the middle east and how that uh initiated the sequence of events that led to the like widespread uh use of suicide bombing yeah Um, yeah yeah that's a that's a great film as well um 
we might get around yeah. to it on the show eventually, but it's it's a fucking yeah, monster. It it's a three-hour uh, epic. It's it's a very long, long very long uh, film for sure. It is crushing. So. But I, I would I would strongly recommend the audience uh, go and check that out as well. Um, it might it might actually be. Oh god, I was I was going to say it might be the best way to start with Curtis, but actually it's probably not. It's um, probably this series like all watched over is a relatively gentle introduction. Um, yeah. As as long as you can handle the the violence in the third episode, <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe yeah. skip that, skip the third one if, uh, <laughs> if you don't have the stomach for that. Um, yeah. I, I kind of think I think I kind of think he could have he could have cut it in such a way that that just wasn't on screen. Like it's some some of it reads as egregious, like um, just yeah yeah um, as, uh, shock for shock's sake. But um, it is brief. Like I, it's I, it's not a dominating thing in the the film. I, so. I, I think. I mean, I, I guess you could say it's about shock value, but on the other hand, I think it's also like the way he, the the footage he chooses to portray human death, um, is usually the aftermath of violence, um, and and I think that um, it's like trying to show how this kind of. Uh, widespread wanton killing um is like a normal aspect of life in the times that he's portraying right uh it's not like he's showing a lot of scenes of killing it's it's of like people just kind of walking around and there are corpses everywhere right and and i think that's kind of what he was trying to get at uh more so than be like you know oh like Here's protesters being shot or something like yeah, that. Yeah, true. Yeah, it's um, it's not the most gruesome thing in the world, but um, yeah, kind of like fair warning for anyone that's going to attempt these films. Like there, there is that bit. Um, so, still probably a recommended, uh, recommended watch. Um, I think overall, yeah. I mean, like I've really enjoyed revisiting these. Um, it's been by now. I think probably it was it was maybe a two or three years since I'd saw seen them last. Um, and yeah, um, I think there is like great value in Curtis having gathered all this stuff together and cataloged all these various ways in which kind of machine thinking was misapplied to um, science and to policy um, and to kind of like to try and signpost kind of ways or to at least mark out the, the pits that you might be able to fall into. Um, so like what do we have in the way of like a positive takeaway from this um because i think this could this series could very easily be read as a total downer of just like extinguishing the hope for the use of technology or the use of kind of computing metaphors or the use of machine yeah i I think it can be read in a way um that is kind of in line with what you were saying about the the death drive um where it's like you watch it to confirm your sense of the futility of human endeavor so as to not have to do anything right uh that that's that's a way you can you can read these these episodes i think um and i mean um he's so focused on failure and negativity in these episodes that uh you really have to read read between the lines if you want to take something positive out of it, right? Um, uh, 
uh, and I guess it's kind of like a less it's it's sort of like where we came to when we were talking about uh, Blade Runner, right? That like it doesn't really have a positive message, but it does outline what we don't want, right? Or <laughs> what we should be afraid of, or what we should we should stay away from. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think like that's that's positive in itself, right? That like here's a bunch of stuff that didn't work, and these are kind of the reasons why. Or uh, um, like what like what I was saying in the previous episode, it's it's kind of like a a catalog of human folly. Um, yeah, and I and I, I think it's it's kind of in the same sort of tradition as like the dialectic of enlightenment, right? That like um, it. It has that critical uh, capacity of negativity that it brings to the subject matter, um, and it's tr- it's trying to make you think about um, all the problems that it brings up, right? Uh, and and see them in a different light. And I think it's successful in that sense, right? Like it, I think it does sort of. Um, bring up a number of topics and present them in a way in an, un, in an unusual way uh and ends up being thought-provoking because of that um but yeah i think uh, as far as sort of the positivity goes uh, it, it's it's kind of like well what if what have people done to try to get away from this kind of problematic or or destructive behavior right like we have to look elsewhere as like well you know what are examples of people using computing technology in a much more conscious way of like these are its limits this is what it really means um and actually like addressing people as people instead of as as uh, units of operation in a system, or as 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 uh, computing machines themselves. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna say say something along those lines. Yeah, that like people as people, like we we need to fully fully acknowledge that we we are not computers. We are human beings, and like accept all that that means. That like we are what we are, right? Like it's there. There isn't any kind of way around that. Like yeah, and no, when I say people as people, I don't mean addressing people in their humanity, as uh, we saw with like, um, for example, uh, what uh, Price was doing, right? Like addressing people at, at, as humans in the abstract, but like actually paying attention to who people are yeah right (laughs) like that's a (laughs) that's a common folly that we see uh like in red plenty or in these episodes that um yeah just not people not really being very savvy about the other individuals they relate with right Mm, yeah certainly um yeah i mean full agreement um i think there's yeah there's the, the kind of two sort of sides with there there's like actually acknowledging human beings as human beings as as a as opposed to being something else like computers and yeah absolutely like acknowledging human beings as people like as in like interesting agents of their own that have their own motivations and desires and our our lives like they they are living things um yeah like i think it's it, it seems to be a problem of over abstraction right like that there was this kind of grand vision of abstracting everything about both the world and human society to the point of being 
essentially unrecognizable as either the world or human society. Um, and that's that's got to go, right? Like, it hasn't worked, right. so it's got to be chucked. Right. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you'd like to cover in terms of generalities uh, across the series? Um, I think we mostly talked about sort of, like, the the grand scope of, of the three episodes. Um, and... Yeah, I think I just wanted to say that, like, we're obviously going to be following up on this in, in future episodes. Uh, we'll be calling back to it, um, no doubt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think that's that's the kind of a theme that's been developing for this uh, this show in general, that, like, every, every episode we do is building on previous stuff, and um, we're kind of, like planting seeds for a, a lot of further exploration in uh, in future episodes um yeah and for i suppose for for like any listeners that like maybe have any um i don't know interesting comments or um like suggestions for avenues of exploration uh which obviously no promise that we'll actually get around to any of it but um we'll take it into consideration um maybe get in touch with us on twitter we're at uh, gi unit pod um we're on Facebook as General Intellect Unit, and uh, I think that's basically it. And the two sort of communications avenues. Um, yeah, and like, thanks for listening to us through this um, bit of a mammoth sort of three-parter. Um, mm-hmm. If you haven't done so already, and I kind of like would be pretty surprised if anyone's listening at this point and they haven't, but like, subscribe or leave a review or something, or just like more useful than that, uh, share us around with friends or like communities that you think might actually be interested in this. Thanks for being with us, and um, we'll see you again in two weeks with uh, whatever we decide to do next. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.